Welcome to the latest podcast from the Luxury Middle South Asia Institute at Harvard University. My name is Hasit Shah. In the developing world, 95% of people with a clinically significant mental illness receive no treatment at all, and it costs the global economy an estimated trillion dollars a year. Vikram Patel is a distinguished Indian psychiatrist and the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health at Harvard Medical School. I caught up with him a few days before the Mittal Institute's 2018 symposium, where Professor Patel is one of the key speakers. For me, mental health is one of the greatest challenges that faces humanity. Uh, And to really address this complex challenge, you're going to need scholarship from very many different disciplines to actually work together. In Harvard, I think we have exactly the right ecosystem that has scholarship across very diverse disciplines to address this challenge. And that's really what I'm hoping to achieve here. How do you go from scholarship at Harvard to um, creating direct impact on the ground in the places often difficult to work in as South Asia? One of the great assets that Harvard has is its connection with effector organizations. For example, in the medical school, our strong association with Partners in Health or Sangat, the NGO that I founded in India, uh, these are effector organizations they deliver. And so I see our role as academics as extending towards supporting the capacity of these effector organizations to deliver the science or to translate the science that we have generated. Why did you choose to focus on creating better access to mental health? Why, was that, why has that been, um, I guess, your life's work for the last few years? So first of all, I should say, apart from you know, NGOs delivering services, one of our most important partners that I omitted mentioning is governments. And the Global Mental Health at Harvard Initiative will launch a technical support unit whose primary uh, goal is to support governments to actually scale up evidence-based packages of care. And that links me to your immediate question, which is why access to care is so important, quite simply because the fact that more than 95%, 95% of people with a clinically significant mental health problem like depression in developing countries do not receive any care should be considered one of the greatest global health scandals of our times. And so our work is really trying to address this enormous scandal in a variety of innovative ways. 95%. What kind of impact is that having on the countries themselves? Enormous impact. If you look at the economic modelling on the lost productivity and therefore the economic consequences to countries, uh, you will discover figures that are almost unimaginable. For example, the School of Public Health here at Harvard produced a report in 2011 that estimated that roughly $1 trillion, $1 trillion, is being lost to the global economy each year purely due to depressive and anxiety disorders. We don't even count substance use disorders, serious mental illnesses, just mood and anxiety disorders. Why is the situation so dire in terms of access? Well, I think in part it's because very often political leaders do not really consider mental health problems as real health conditions. Because, for example, we don't have a blood test or an x-ray to prove that someone has a mental health problem. Um, I think there is also a sense that this is just social suffering. You know, this is part of your, the miseries of everyday life. It's not really a clinical condition. And yet another myth is that these are conditions that require very expensive, very long-term, uh, very uh, you know, arduous kinds of interventions that are simply not affordable. 
in low resource settings. All of these are myths. And we have great science to show that there are truths that challenge these sorts of uh, ideas. I'm of South Asian origin. I've worked extensively mm-hmm. in the region. One of the things that I guess I know is that there's also a significant stigma attached to talking about mental health in the region. How do you break through that? Well, I think the most important strategy that I'm using is to engage young people. Young people are a really important demographic, um, not only because they constitute a very large proportion of South Asia's population, they're called the demographic dividend in fact, but because mental health problems are the leading cause of sickness and death in this age group, and most mental health problems emerge during adolescence and young adulthood. So therefore, this is something that is very personal and important to young people. And of course, because they are seen as such important drivers of social change, working with young people, I think, has been a key strategy for me. The other important uh, community I work with is people with lived experience, people who have been affected by mental disorders uh, directly, uh, and trying to support their ability to advocate for themselves, be the voices that speak for, your, for their own rights to care and to dignity is the second strategy which I believe will help combat some of the stigma. Now, you're going to be talking about some of this at the Middle Institute's um, mm-hmm. symposium, which is coming up on May the 4th. The theme of the symposium is knowledge translation from research to action. How do you go from research to action? You've mentioned um, Harvard initiatives. You've mentioned engaging with governments and other stakeholders. But how do you reach that 95%? Well, I think it's really working multi-sectorally with a diversity of stakeholders. Mental health is not a simple medical condition. It has tentacles that reach deep not only into our brains, but also into our social environments. And I think, therefore, to address this comprehensively, one has to address both biology as well as the environments we live in. And those environments will be affected by forces that are way outside the health sector. So involving, for example, the business community, involving educational community, etc., we really have to have a multi-sectoral response to mental health care. And I would again stress, you know, at the Mittal Symposium, my, my, my interest is on young people. And the idea that Amartya Sen uh, wonderfully coined, the idea of capabilities, I think is central here. If the leading cause of death and disability in young people in India, and indeed South Asia today, is suicide um, and substance use-related injuries, we should be pausing and asking ourselves, why in heaven's name is this happening? And what are we as a society doing, not as a medical community, but as a society doing to address this, uh, as it were, loss of hope in one's own future? That's very interesting. So beyond the medical community, beyond your community, um, what should other key actors be doing? So I think one of the key actions we need is in early childhood when we know that maltreatment and neglect, and I don't mean just extreme forms of abuse, although of course those are very important, but the more box standard everyday neglect that leads, for example, to astonishing rates of stunting um, in India, those have to be addressed uh, through very, very robust child welfare programs. The second developmentally sensitive age group is adolescents, and um, for that, school-based programs that, for example, enhance participation and and agency of young people, build skills for emotional regulation, um, and provide early interventions for uh, emerging mental health problems and substance use problems, this would be the sorts of interventions that we need, school-based and community-based. 
um, and, and, and focusing both on parents and the school environment and of course the neighborhood also but I think schools and parents are more tractable in terms of being fairly controlled environments in which you can achieve a lot. You've just kind of alluded to the scale of the problem there because you know, we know that public education in India is at best hit or miss depending on where you live, depending on whether you're a city dweller or in the, in the, in the countryside. Um, how do you solve that? I mean, you, what we're talking about here is a reformation of the way education works in India. Yeah, I think this is a really good point. First of all, it's w- worthwhile pointing out that school education is, is a geographic lottery in India. It depends which state you're in. Some states actually have pretty good public education systems where they have, for example, you know, reasonable student-to-teacher uh, uh, ratios. They have um, you know, school counselors, etc., etc. Um, uh, some states, on the other hand, like, uh, you know, like Bihar, for example, have much greater challenges. So we've been working in Bihar. We have just completed a large school health promotion program. And let me tell you, the engagement and enthusiasm of the Department of Education and the teachers has been really astonishing. I believe that people genuinely do want to see schools transform, uh, but there needs to be a root and branch reform, a systemic or structural reform in how schools are actually organized and run. Um, and I think this goes beyond just simply heaping blame onto teachers and principals uh, for doing a poor job. I think they do as hard a job as they can. There are, of course, areas where they can do better. But I think the system itself needs a complete comprehensive reform. Could governments in across South Asia state and national level governments across the region be doing more? Yes, absolutely. First of all, investing heavily in transforming the environment of schools uh, so that they become the sorts of schools that uh, we have tried to promote in our intervention where young people, where students have a direct participation. Um, they have agency. They, they feel that the school is responding to their felt needs. Uh, and that the school is actually accountable to the students. This is a. This sounds like an abstract concept, but we've demonstrated ways in which we can practically uh, operationalize these ideas. And the impact of that, in terms of improving school uh, climate, uh, reducing bullying, reducing uh, mental health uh, distress, uh, etc., that is the kind of approach that I would strongly promote um, in school environments. And of course. Just to add, this is beyond, above and beyond, one would hope, better quality of teaching, which of course is a given. One final question then. What's the biggest pushback you've faced? What's the biggest challenge? What's the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome? I think the biggest obstacle is the credibility of the science, that mental health problems are such major causes of the burden of disease. This, for quite a long time, was simply not believed. I'll be honest with you. And, and now I think there is, I don't think anyone denies it, certainly in South Asia today. You see mental health in the news and on the mouths of our political leaders, etc. So I think that credibility issue is no longer a, um, a major uh, problem. The other cred- issue was that really you can treat these conditions with frontline workers, for example. It was just there was assumption you needed highly trained psychiatrists and psychologists to do that. That was another challenge, which again, I think the science has proven time and again uh, that, in fact, you can deliver these interventions in the hands of frontline workers with appropriate training and supervision. That, again, is no longer uh, um, denied, that, that, that side. So I think these two have come together uh, to the what I consider sweet point we're at today in the field, where major investments in scaling up are, I believe, just around the corner.